Father, we just uh, take the time again to acknowledge your presence and thank you for this opportunity to come and open up your word. Lord, as uh, uh, I've been taking the time to, to do the study for tonight, I'm excited about all the things that you've shown us uh, and, and want to show us uh, in, already and, and want to show us tonight. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that even though many of us are tired for many different reasons, uh, with other things going on in our lives, we thank you that during this time your spirit will take over, we'll get invigorated, we'll get excited, and Lord, just speak to our hearts and help us understand this book and take it to heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 is where we're going to start off with. And if all goes according to plan, we will finish through verse 7 of chapter 2 tonight. That's where we're hoping to get that, that, that far. We're trying to pick up a little bit of speed. If Jesus comes back before we finish Revelation, that's okay too, though. So that's right. We'll just live it. So Revelation 1 verses uh, 12 through 20. John says, "I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire." His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So as we get started tonight, what I want to deal with first is, is look at how Jesus is standing among the lampstands. This is kind of important, and, and it's kind of a cool thing that he's standing among the lampstands. Actually, this should be a comfort to us as believers. Uh, what do we know from this passage we just read? What do the lampstands represent? The churches, okay? Now, you remember back then, lampstands contained oil. And they burned by burning oil. And in order for the oil or the, the lamp to continue burning, there had to be someone who tended the lamps, continually making sure there was oil in the lamps. Who's doing that? angels. No. It's Jesus. He's the one standing among the lampstands in this picture here. He's the one who's actually tending the, the churches. And, and this is what I want you to see is, is the scripture, and I'm, we're going to look at a bunch of places that talk about this. Uh, Jesus is the one who's ministering to his church. Uh, go real quickly to uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. The Hebrew writer says in verse 5, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And we see in this passage here, God's made what promise to us? He'll never leave us and nor forsake us, ever. What can man do to us? Jesus is ministering to his churches. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. Somebody read verses 13 through 18. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came into the region of Philippi, he asked his disciples who new people say the Son of Man is. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you, uh, you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and 
On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Alright, you see here, when Jesus is dealing with his disciples on who people say that I am, they listed the different people that people were saying he was, and he said, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said a very interesting thing, he said, flesh and blood didn't open your eyes to this. My Father has opened your eyes to this truth, and I'm going to say that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, we got to understand, uh, for a while there have been some denominations that taught that the rock that Jesus built his church on was Peter. But actually, in the Greek, when it says, on this rock, I'll build my church, that word rock is actually in the feminine. So he can't be talking about Peter. He's talking about Peter's profession of his faith. And so, because Peter has said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, on that is what I'm going to build my church. For those who believe that I am who I am, that I am the Messiah, I am Son of God, I'm going to build my church. And what did he say? The gates of Hades won't overcome it. And so, who's building his church? Jesus is. Who's going to control or protect his church? Jesus is. And who's the one ministering to his church? Jesus is. I want you to understand that even though we have responsibilities to the body and we're to, to love each other, and those of us who are in, in, in uh, leadership have responsibilities, the Bible's very, very clear that Jesus is going to finish what he started. This is his church, his work, and so I don't want us to miss. I'm going to show you a couple other places here as well. I don't want to, don't want you to miss the, the the importance of Jesus standing among the lampstands. He's ministering to his churches. He's the one making sure the oil of the Holy Spirit, if you will, continues to flow. This is something he's passionate about, and so uh, he'll never leave nor forsake. Go to John chapter 10. Let me show you some more. Uh, over in John chapter 10, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of a long passage to you, verses uh, 1 through 16. But there's so much here that I want you to make some notes to come back and really, really look at this slowly. John chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of, the sheep, of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Now before we go any further, let me kind of help you set the stage here. Jesus is using illustration from how things worked back then. When they had sheep, uh, a lot of times they would put them at night into this big pen where it was more than one herd, if you will. And so the shepherd would come and stand at the gate, and he would call his sheep. And that, those sheep would respond only to their shepherd's voice, and they would come out. If it wasn't their shepherd's voice, they'd run to the back of the pen afraid. But Jesus is using this illustration to talk about his concern for, the, for his church. And then he goes on to say, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And I made a little note to myself to go back and spend some time meditating on that a little bit, on the fact that God wants me to go in and out in Him and just find pasture. When you hear that term, go in and out and find pasture, what do you picture when it comes to sheep? It's the graze. It's the graze. Resting. Being fed. Being fed. Peacefulness. Peacefulness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me not lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside the quiet waters, the still waters, the, the, the not dangerous waters, if you will. He restores my soul. He anoints my head with oil and those types of things. The picture of, and, and so as I read that and was preparing for this, I just made a little note saying, go back to this. And I want to take some time to really look at whether or not I really understand that Jesus wants Jim Johnson to go in and out in him and find pasture. And really rest in Him. For too often we've been thinking He wants me to work for Him. He wants me to rest in Him. And then He goes on and says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here he's talking about us as well. But again, we could take some time to deal with the fact that over the years, if you've been in any kind of church situation, you've seen a few shepherds who ended up being hired hands. You know? But don't get mad at that person. Don't get mad at them. Because actually, Jesus is supposed to have been the shepherd all along. And if we as church people, if we as Christians would understand that the Lord is our shepherd, we wouldn't put so much confidence in man. We wouldn't be so devastated by man when man lets us down because they weren't my shepherd anyway. They were just one that was been given a responsibility and a charge and God will hold them accountable for how well they did. But you know what? Ultimately, whether I make it or not, it's up to Jesus, not up to man. And when we stop putting the pressure on us and putting it on people, but we're good to putting it back where it belongs on the Lord who can handle it you'll find peace, you'll find rest you'll find joy and the stuff that goes on in this world won't bother you as much we can get all caught up in all the mess that's happening in our churches can't we it'll just work you over but actually if you understand that the Lord is our shepherd he's going to finish what he started and I just really feel like God wants us to take some time to really just really meditate on the fact that he's standing among the lampstands he's adding the oil he's tending to the churches He's the one who's taking care of them. Let me show you one more passage here in John 10. Here, look at verses 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, when you see Jesus standing among the lampstands here in Revelation chapter 1, Makes a whole lot more sense. Now, it's a bigger picture, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He's tending and ministering to the churches. Alright? Now, let's keep moving on, though. We see here in, in Jesus a very similar appearance, though, to God the Father, whom Daniel saw when Daniel saw God the Father on his throne. Go to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to read to you verses 9 through 14. We're in the middle of a vision that Daniel has been given about the last days and the Antichrist and the one world power that's going to be coming into, uh, into authority that we're going to be talking about later on in the study. And, and he says in verse 9, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheel, its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was uh, flowing, coming from out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence he was given authority glory and sovereign power all peoples nations and men of every language worshiped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed here Daniel in his vision sees Jesus before anybody knows who Jesus is you understand? I mean, he sees one like the Son of Man. Why do we keep seeing this term? Go back to Revelation 1, uh, and you see here in verse 12, John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and then it goes on to talk about his eyes and all. <clears throat> here we see a very similar picture to what Daniel saw of God the Father. Why do we keep seeing this term though son of man or like a son of man it's a simple answer it's human like, human -like. Uh, they, they, they didn't have the word human like we do now you know a, a human came on the scene and so in this situation he's seeing God on his throne and it's obvious that God and the father is beyond human yet I saw someone human show up Daniel says 
Uh, and then in this situation as well, I turned and there was among them someone that was human-like. You know, he was like a son of man. He, he had a human form. And, and, and so this is all that he's talking about here. And of course we know this is Jesus. And it's kind of neat as you look back in Daniel 7, Daniel saw Jesus before Jesus had come to the earth mm-hmm. in human form and all. And so, But I just want you to just take some time. Look at this picture of Jesus. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. By the way, this is a, a representation or a picture of the, the attire of a priest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive. Forever and ever I hold the keys of death in Hades. Jesus is terrifying in this picture. Think about that for a minute. If there was anybody that knew Jesus probably the best, it would probably be John. I mean, a lot of times I've asked churches, who do you think of all the twelve disciples knew Jesus the best? And a lot of times people say Peter. Peter was just loud, so he gets a lot of attention. But to be honest with you, it was probably John. John was the one who continually in his Gospels or it would describe himself as the one whom Jesus loved or the one who leaned against his breast when they were eating the Last Supper. He was the one who at the cross, Jesus said, my mother is now your mother and, and you're her son. I mean, G- John was the one who was one of the three who was on the Mount of Transfiguration and actually saw him glorified as his glory shone through his human form. And, and John was one of the, the ones who was there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and he kicked everybody else out and he was there in the garden as they went along further to pray. If there's anybody that knew Jesus the best, it would be John. But when he hears this voice and he turns around and he sees Jesus again, his reaction is not, hey buddy. Do you see it? The bigger you get in your walk with the Lord, the bigger he's going to get. See, a lot of times we have this picture and this mindset that um, the more we study and the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we'll be able to figure it out and it'll be more manageable. Let me tell you, after 30-some years of studying this book and coming to know the Lord, He gets bigger. He gets bigger and He gets harder and harder to figure out. The, when we're young, we're zealous and we think we got it all figured out, don't we? Remember back when you first saved? Everybody in the church was wrong because they didn't know it like you knew it. You know? I heard this one man put it well to me. He said, you know, he said, preachers go through three phases. When they're young, they're a warrior. Then they become chief. Then they calm down and become medicine man. You know? And you know what? I can see a lot of that in my walk with the Lord. When I was young, I was on fire. I had zeal. And man, I knew the word. And nobody else knew the word like me. And then I went out of the warrior phase into the chief phase where I wanted to call the shots and be the pastor and follow me and... I'm turning more in my older age. I'm only only 44, but I'm turning more into medicine, man. Because you know what? I don't have the answers, but I can point you to the one that does. And I learned to listen a whole lot more and not answer as much. But I wrote down that he's terrifying, yet he's comforting. And then when I did that, I thought of the section from the Chronicles of Narnia. I had my daughter at least find it for me. It's where, if you've never read these stories, I'm encouraging you to do it. C.S. Lewis has done an incredible job of just giving us a picture of God and His work. And in this situation, they're finding out about, they're about to meet the king, Aslan, which represents Jesus. And, uh, oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once, for again that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan, asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It's it's he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. 
No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight, as the sound of his roar sorrows will be no more. Uh, when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand him when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan? A man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts, Aslan? He's a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, Mister said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's a wonderful description of who Jesus is. Folks, he's terrifying. If you really take some time to let the Word of God show you, what's coming out of his mouth? A double-edged sword. Does a lot of good come from a double-edged sword? Have you ever thought about the fact that Representative of the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth is the picture of his words being judgment. The Bible says the word of God is living and it's active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to cut right down to the heart of things, to separate between joints and marrow and soul and spirit. Folks, I don't want you to ever, in this understanding of God's love for you, to ever come to that place where you can ever say to Jesus, Hey, buddy. Because no one in Scripture that ever saw Him in His glory had that response. You can't. Yet, the same Jesus who was so terrifying that John fell at His feet as though dead, let's just be honest about it, He fainted. He just plain old passed out. He was so scared. But the same Jesus that terrified Him reached down with His right hand to comfort Him. I want you to keep that holy reverence. The Bible calls it the fear of the Lord. Remember last week we looked at the seven roles of the Holy Spirit? Wasn't that one of them? The fear of the Lord? Don't ever get chummy. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that He loves you. And He cares about you. And then He tells them to write down three things. And this is very important. Because this is going to help us break down the rest of this book. He tells them to write down what you have seen, what is now, we're in verse 19 of chapter 1, write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And you'll be able to see, we'll break down this book into these three sections. Uh, what you have seen is chapter 1. And when he says, write what you have seen, this is pretty much chapter 1. And then he says, what is now, and that's going to be chapters 2 and 3, which is the church age, and the message to the churches. And then he says what will take place later, and that's chapters 4 through 22. And this will help you really in your study of this book to really understand. So what, it, what, it, what he's seen is chapter 1, what is now is going to be chapters 2 and 3, and what is going to take place later is going to be chapters 4 through the end of the book. Okay? And that will help you when it comes time for us to understand when things are going to happen. Anything that happens in chapter 4 to the end of the book is going to happen after the rapture, as he gathers and takes us up. <clears throat> All right? But let's deal with this term angels, alright? We've been touching on this a little bit. We need to take some time to really take a look at this. He says that um, the mystery of the seven stars he saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now the Greek word is angelos. And just about every time that it's used, it represents a messenger. 
Okay? And you'll see at the beginning of chapter 2, look at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel or the church of the church in Ephesus, to the, or the messenger of the church. So who are these messengers? Who are the, What is angels? What does it mean? Well, some say that when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, it, it refers to an angel that's been put in charge of each church. And I'm going to show you scripturally why that's not the case. All right? There, there are some that teach that when it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, that there's this angel that's in charge of the church in Ephesus, and Jesus is giving his message to the angel. Let me just show you that actually. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Somebody read verse 5 for us. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Alright, how many mediators are there between us and God? And, and who is it? It's Jesus. He doesn't need mediators between us and him. Who's standing and walking among the lampstands? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one ministering to his churches. He doesn't need an angel to minister to his churches. The whole idea of an angel being in charge of a church is not really a scriptural picture at all. What it is, though, he's saying to the messengers in the church in Ephesus, to the messengers in the church in Smyrna, to the messengers in the church in Pergamum, and so on. And so let me show you who the messengers are. I'm going to give you three passages to help you see this a little bit. Who, then who are these messengers to these churches? Well, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5. And you're going to see in this passage two or three different terms all used interchangeably to help us understand who these messengers are. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Peter says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. What are the three terms that are used interchangeably here? that Peter is writing to? Elders, shepherds. Elders, shepherds, and what? Overseers. Overseers. That's all referring to the same people. Those who have been given the spiritual authority or the spiritual leadership in a local church. You know, the Bible teaches that there are those who have given different gifts and some are called, well, we'll get there, and apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And, and the Bible teaches that in, in our churches, according to the different gifts that God's given us, we need to work accordingly. And here we see that the term elder or overseer or shepherd or pastor are all interchangeable. There are those that God has given the responsibility of being the leaders, if you will, in the church, the preachers and the teachers, if you will. They are the ones that are the messengers to the church, if you will, from the Word of God. But let me not just stop there. Doesn't the Bible also teach that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, each of us can hear from God? Amen. The Lord hopefully can speak to each of you. You don't have to have a preacher be the only one to hear you hear. God uses and teachers between now and when we get to heaven. The Bible says one day prophecies will cease. You know, the need for preachers will be kind of non-existent. When I get to heaven, He's going to give me a new job. You don't need preaching in heaven. We're going to understand things. We're going to know it as we're know as we're known. There won't be any need for preachers in heaven. You can paint the mansions. I can paint them. Gee, <laughs> thanks. I just finished painting my house and don't want to paint anymore. I'd like a different job than painting, but thanks a lot, dude. <laughs> you, you bum. But uh, um, but uh, there are those that have been given this responsibility. Go to Ephesians chapter four. Let me show you what I'm talking about. That one's going to eat at me for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 11 and 12. It was He, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. 
There are those that God has given the responsibility of leading the church, teaching, preaching. These are the messengers, if you will. But don't just sit back and say, well, whatever God tells that guy, I'll, we're individually accountable to God for whether or not we're hearing from Him. As we've already touched on, man can let you down. Man can very much let you down. So don't do, don't get totally addicted to a person. Understand that they have roles and responsibilities. But understand that they're human just like you are. They can make mistakes just like you can. And also understand, let me show you one more place. In James chapter 3, you don't want their job. Yeah. Look at James chapter 3. It's very clear. Right after the book of Hebrews is the book of James. James chapter 3, verse 1. says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. Why? Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. God is holding those of us who are preachers and teachers in higher accountability. Why? Because words have power. Words are important. And we're going to be held accountable for what we say. That's why you need to prayerfully ever preach or teach. You just don't go up there and wing it. You need to have prayed. You need to have studied. You need to make sure that you understand the leadership of the Spirit and being in the Spirit as we talked about last week. So who are the messengers? He says those are the seven stars in his right hand. These are the messengers of the churches. Most likely it's the pastors. It's the, the leaders, leaders in the church. But don't ever just assume that they are the ones who get the message. God wants to speak to you as well. God wants to speak to you as well. Alright? Any questions about that before we move on? All right, let's go then. Let's move over to chapter 2 then. Verses 1 through 7. To the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I'm just going to touch on this because I, I, as I kind of prayed through how God wants me to do this, I really felt like I wasn't going to take the time to go into the great detail that some commentaries do. There are those who say that the the, the letters to the churches are representative of different time periods in church history and that you can you can see a downward decline from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea and as much as we can see that there is some some kind of a downward decline in his message to the church in Ephesus and what goes on all the way down to Laodicea there are those who have taken the time to break each of these churches into representative church ages and they say Ephesus was the early church and then the next church and well there's a problem with that See, the Bible teaches that the, the return of Jesus Christ to rapture his bride is imminent. Correct? Mm -hmm. the Bible had to, has, that's one of the main tenets of the rapture is it could happen at any moment. If these churches were representative church of ancient <coughs> church history, then the rapture is not imminent because we haven't gotten to the Laodicean time period yet or whatever. You know? And so let me just tell you that, that a, a historical view of this would be a better, more accurate way of understanding. These are seven literal churches that existed. These are messages of Jesus to these churches. Can we learn from these churches? Yes. Well, otherwise they wouldn't be here for us. And you're going to see near the end of this uh, section that he says, he is in here to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This isn't just a message to the church in Ephesus. This is also to us. So don't try to fit these into time periods in history. There are those that have done that. If you want to do that kind of study, you can. But I, I've come to realize that if you do that, it makes it kind of impossible for the return of Jesus to be imminent if there are certain time periods we had to go through first and all. So we throw that out to you. But also understand that you can see not only a downward decline of the church in the church age, 
you can see an individual downward decline of your individual walk with the Lord patterned in these churches. And we're going to see that as we do our study, how the this church here was doing all the right stuff, but they left their first love. But I want to just go back real quickly to Acts chapter 20. Put a bookmark here. Go back to Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32. I want you to see that when Jesus commends this church for testing those who claim to be apostles, he's praising them for doing exactly what Paul told them to do. See, the church in Ephesus, if you want to do a study of that on your own, started when in Acts chapter 18 when Paul went there and he preached for a while and then so many people started coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It was actually hurting the business of the silversmiths who were making little um, monuments or little little idols. statuettes of idols of the, the god Artemis of the Ephesians. And uh, you know how people like to wear things around their neck or things on their dashboard of their car and all that kind of stuff. Well, as people became believers in Jesus Christ, they didn't buy these little silversmiths' idols anymore. And the silversmith thought, good grief, <laughs> you know, if this keeps up, we're going to be out of business. No one's going to buy our little statuettes and idols anymore. And so they actually went in to grab the guys and Paul and, and, and others and threw them into the center of town and a big uproar started and he had to leave the city. He then never went back to the city. He'd been there three years. But he does meet up with the elders, and we see that term again, the spiritual leaders, the overseers, the pastors in the church. He meets with them on a, in a place called Miletus here. And look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Sorry, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today and that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. You see those three terms used again? He met with the elders of the church, and he called them shepherds, and he called them overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which, you, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. When Paul met with the leaders of this church, he said, watch out. After I leave, it's going to happen. And it, it, there's going to be those from without and those from within. are going to come up within and they're going to try to tear away the church, tear apart the church and have them people follow them. That's what that term apostle means, by the way. A sent, sent one. One sent by God. And there are those who claim to be apostles. They claim to be sent by God and they have this truth. What are we to be doing? How do we know whether or not someone's a false teacher? How do we know? The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will give you give you insight. What else? Study the Word. Match up what they say with whether or not it lines up with Scripture. The whole of Scripture. Because they can say certain things that you can make the Scripture say, but they leave other stuff off. It has to match up with the whole of Scripture. You said the fruit of their lives. The fruit. Right? Is that what you're saying? The fruit of their lives? The Bible says watch out for that. You know, uh, are they divisive? Uh, are they wanting people to follow them instead of Jesus? You know, these types of things. And so they were warned by Paul, watch out. There will be those who claim to be sent by God, claim to be apostles. Watch out. Now, back here in Ephesus, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 2, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your deeds. 
your hard work and your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but and are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Now skip verse 4. Look at verse 5. I'm going to read this again to you. Just listen to how it sounds without verse 4. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Doesn't that sound funny? When you leave verse 4 off, it almost seems like, wait a minute, I thought you were just patting us on the back here. Yeah. Well, that's why verse 4 is so important. As awesome as it was that they were working hard, persevering, haven't grown weary. Jesus says, I have one thing against you, though. You've forsaken your first love. Doesn't that negate? It negates all the other. Right. It negates all the other. And folks, let me just tell you right now, not just for churches, but for you individually, this is a danger for all of us. We're in an age where we want knowledge. We want to know, and we want to study, and we want to learn, and we want to be proper and right, and we can get out of the love relationship with Jesus Christ doing all the right things. You know, over my years of pastoring, uh, I led a many, many a Wednesday night Bible study. You know, they call it prayer service, and me, I've never really been into Wednesday night prayer services because it tends to be more of an organ recital, as I've heard. You know, we pray for someone's kidney and somebody's spleen and that kind of stuff. I'll be honest with you, I've seen more Wednesday night prayer services praying people out of heaven than spending time praying people into heaven, kind of a thing. And so what I would do all the, over the years is I would have a little bit of time where we pray, but I would turn into a Bible study. That's, that's my gifting, that's my calling. And so on Wednesday nights, I would teach the Bible. But every now and then, I would stop the Bible study and I would just ask this simple question of the faithful Wednesday night crowd what's something Jesus has showed you this week and I'm not kidding there'd be silence in the room there'd be silence in the room and here were the faithful here were the ones who were mad at everybody else who wasn't there on Wednesday night because they should have been here Wednesday night and we were here Wednesday night and we've worked hard and we've been faithful and we've been a member of this church for 40 years Yet if you ask them, what has Jesus said to you or shown you this week? They had no idea what you're talking about. They knew how to work hard. They knew how to be faithful. They knew how to persevere. But that living relationship, he says, repent. Turn around. Go back to the things you did at the beginning. I didn't take the time to do this. I'm going to ask my wife for permission to bring it, but... We have in our closet what I we have a, a, a box of stuff that I've saved that she's given me, and she has a box of stuff that she saved that I've given her over the years. And you know they're pretty full. But if you would go and if we were to have these boxes here and open them up, you know what'd be embarrassing is how long ago it was we put something in it when we were first dating. It didn't matter. She left me a little note in my lunch or something. It went into the Becky box. A card for whatever reason, the card would be saved, you know. And we'd fill up our boxes with all the stuff that we gave each other. But we've been married 19 years now, and I probably haven't put something in the box in at least 15 years. What happened? Well, it's very easy in your love relationship with your spouse to become very taken for granted, comfortable, familiar, familiar. Go with me real quickly to... Yeah, aren't those things on the list going to be the... When we get there and expect the rewards, we're going to be shocked that they're going to burn up. A lot of the things that, that we, we thought... We pat ourselves on the perseverance, the hard work, the faithfulness. Anything not done by Him is of the flesh. So go, go to Luke chapter 7. very interesting story here in verse 36 of Luke 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man really were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Well, he said, two men owned um, money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet, and you didn't put on oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now I want you to, I want you to really think about this passage here. Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much love much, right? Those who have been forgiven little, love little. How many of you could quote to me James chapter 2 verse 10? I'll start it for you. If you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, what's the rest? You're guilty as if you broke it all. So if James chapter 2 verse 10 is correct, that if you're able to keep the whole law, you assemble at just one point. You're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. Has anybody been forgiven more than anybody else? No. Then what's Jesus saying then when he says those who have been forgiven much love much and those who have been forgiven little love little? If the scripture teaches that we're all just as guilty before God, there's not greater sinners than others. It's an acknowledgement. Jesus is saying those who realize they've been forgiven much, love much. Those who think they've been forgiven little, love little. And one of the problems with the church today is we've got lots of people that are persevering and faithful and charter members who think they've been forgiven less than other people. And they love little. Jesus says, go back to the beginning. Go back to your salvation experience. Really go back and deal with the fact that you have been forgiven much. I got saved in 1973 at 8 years old. I hadn't been a Hells Angels biker. You know, I had no tattoos or anything like that. But you know what? The Bible says that in the eyes of God I was as guilty as Osama bin Laden. Because I had broken his commands. Willfully broken his commands. And in the eyes of God, I was guilty as if I had broken all of His commands. And when we really go back to the beginning and repent and go back to what we did at the first and go back to that saving relationship and what He saved us from, the love relationship comes back. And it goes back. Many a time in marital counseling, I've told couples to go back to what they used to do. Date. Send each other flowers or give each other cards or... You know, get a babysitter and actually go on a real date. My wife and I actually, uh, we, we got a policeman knocking on the window one time. We were in New Orleans and we were necking in the park at night. <laughs> and he raps on the window thinking he caught a couple of teenagers at it, you know. And I rolled the window down and showed him my wedding rings. He's like, oh, well, you still can't do it. Get out of here. So I was like, all right. But, but you know, you go back and do the things you did at first. And so I want to challenge you. If you think right now, is God pleased with you and your thoughts go to your faithfulness, your perseverance, your hard work, you may not be where you think you are. Well, I go to Bible study on Tuesday night. That's got to count for something. No. If you're here because of your hunger and your love for the Lord, the Lord's pleased with that. But if it's, you think it's getting you points because you're working for it, you've missed it. You've missed it. And here he says to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know everything about you. Repent from the height at which you've fallen. These people hadn't even grown weary. But they had walked away from a love relationship. They had forsaken. They had actually gone away from a love relationship. Now as we wrap up, I want to um, just tell you that this Nicolaitans thing, we're going to deal with in detail when we get to the church in Pergamum. Okay, so I'm not going to take the time to deal with 
you know, one thing in your favor, you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'll explain all that. It has to deal with sexual immorality and all that. I'll deal with that when it comes to uh, the message to the church in Pergamum uh, when we get there. So hold off on that. But I really feel like God, what God wants us to do to wrap up is this. Jesus said that if there's no repentance, though, look what he says next. Uh, repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent... I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. What does that mean? Any idea what that means? Go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking right now that we're coming to the end of the church age. There's not going to be that time when we're actually going to be fellowshipping with him as a group. It's a good guess. Don't think that's it. But it's a good, good try. Is the lampstand also... An expression of the Holy Spirit and the fire that we've been given. It's a picture of, remember, the left lampstand represents what? The church. church. There's seven lampstands representing seven actual churches. If you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to take your church away. From its place. From its place. You're not going to lose your salvation. No. Disperse people. Exactly. You won't lose your salvation. And I don't remember offhand where where is that church? Where was this church in today's? It's actually in Turkey, in the area of Turkey, and if you go to where where it was, it doesn't exist. The sad thing is, all seven of these churches don't exist anymore. The Bible teaches that if we walk in continual disobedience, God will take us home. Remember 1 Corinthians 11? Because some are taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly, some are sick, and some are dead. The Bible teaches that God gives us opportunities. Now, you're not going to lose your salvation. But he says to that church, look, if you if there isn't repentance, I'm going to remove my spirit from you. Now, there are some churches where the Lord has done that. They keep meeting. You know, I always tell people this. Those are the churches that start at 11 o'clock sharp and finish at 12 o'clock dull. But, but there are a lot of churches that the Spirit of God has left. They don't care. Think of the one at the Boston. Yeah, there was. We were on vacation uh, preaching the, in New England last summer, and went into this church in downtown Boston, and you could sense it when you walked in. God hadn't been here for a while, and as you read their literature, and it was it was a tourist stop. They still were meeting, and they had a lady pastor, and it was sad to read what their literature said and what they believed. God wasn't there. It was so far from truth, but they had people that were showing up and were happy. And he says, if you don't get this right, I'm going to be done with this church. Again, that's not for us to determine whether or not God's done with the church. Don't, don't go down that road of thinking, well, I think this is a church God left. No, you, you, that's not your call. But at the same time, understand, he's wanting repentance. And again, these messages aren't just for local churches. They're also for you as a believer. And you can get that truth. But then he gives this promise. He says, to those who have an ears to hear... Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that's the church is. He didn't, he's writing to Ephesus, but he also says, Hear what the Spirit says to the church is. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Who are these overcomers? Believers. But I'm going to show it to you scripturally. Remember, I told you at the beginning of the study, we're going to interpret Revelation from the rest of the Bible. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Now, 1 John is right near the end of the end of the New Testament there. You've got Revelation, then you go back one book, you got Jude, and then you go back one more book, and you got 3 John, then 2 John. 1 John chapter 5. Listen to verses 4 and 5. It says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who are the overcomers? Believers. Those who have been given salvation by God. And remember he says here, For him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. It's a gift. It's a responsibility and a privilege that's been given by God. He controls it. Remember we said at the beginning, he's among the lampstands. He's ministering to his church. So here's what I want to do as we wrap up. I want three people to to read a scripture out loud here. Uh, Someone want to read Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Just give me a nod that you're going to take it. You got that one, Gene? All right. Someone take Jude, verse 1. Cool, you got that one, Jude, verse 1. And someone want Jude, verse 24. Sure. You got it? Okay. Oh, she beat you to it. 
It's all right. No problem. <laughs> no problem. All right, now, listen to the encouragement of these passages about the fact that God is going to finish what He started. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul said he's confident that He who began a good work in us, Jesus, will finish it. Even if it means a spanking. Go ahead. Jude 1. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. To who? Those who are loved, those are loved by God and what? Called. called. No? Kept. 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 It says preserved. Preserved is a great one too. Who Are you holding on to him or is he holding on to you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I would also say at the same time, let go. Yeah. Let, him let him hold on to you. Let him hold on to you. Believe that he will finish. Rest. Come in and out and find pasture. Rest in him that he will finish what he started. And uh, go ahead. Verse 24. Listen to verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Want to do yep. No, that, that, you could go on if you want to, but you hear what it says? To him who is able to keep you from falling mm. and to present you before himself without fault and great joy. <laughs> Folks, if we would really start to understand the Bible says about our salvation how it's been accomplished by God, planned by God before you were even born, before He made the world. It's going to be finished by Him. Rest in Him. Don't let the preachers and teachers say the pressure's on you. Oh, there's some things that God wants you to do. He told us today that if we've decided to walk away, He says turn around. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He's going to keep pursuing us. He's going to keep working on us. He's going to finish what He started. Yet at the same time, He wants us to respond. And how do we do it? We just turn around. We face back in His direction and say, Lord, I'm back. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Or thank you for the fact that you've already forgiven me through, through your accomplishment on the cross. My life is yours. And you start to enter into that rest. Too many Christians are out there working hard, persevering. But they've left their first love. Thoughts or questions before we finish the tape? Go ahead. Hey Jim, uh, where it says here, if you do not repent, and this, this is in uh, Revelation mm -hmm. 2, 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I know you talked about that, but right. if he's not taking salvation away, what is he taking? He's removing that local church from that area. In other words, let me give you an example. Um, if so he's just making the church a dead church. Exactly. The spirit. It's making a church, a lo local church. That local church became a dead church without yeah, the spirit, scattered. or scattered. Because there's always going to be believers in. There, not everybody in that place had left their first love. You understand, when, when, when we see this all the way through, the messages to those who are listening, not everybody was in that condition, but it was a wonderful or sad picture of that whole church. So it's not a losing of salvation, it's just a removing of the Spirit from that local... I'm sorry? He stopped putting the oil in. He stopped putting the oil in. That's a really good illustration of it. Stop yeah, putting the oil in. This one, a note on my Bible says, removes the light from the candlestick. Yep. Or stop so, putting the oil in. But if you were a believer, you transfer that to the individual. Yes, you you can't you cannot transfer it to the fact of the, taking his salvation away. Because so many scriptures teach that when he gives us his spirit, it's a guarantee of our inheritance. And it can never go away. Never. And I could show you tons of scriptures that show that it's impossible. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen. Paul says, "In him you, uh, you you trusted, having heard the word of truth. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee or deposit guarantee." your inheritance. At the same time, we have in 1 Corinthians, uh, I could show you, there's two places in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 that talk about that as well. First Corinthians, uh, where is it? 
Second Corinthians, that's what's throwing me off. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's the neat thing about God. He's not going to break a guarantee. But again, it's God who makes us stand firm in him. We also see it uh, in chapter... Um, Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so, again, we saw in Hebrews... Yeah, there's a bunch of scriptures he's got on the list here. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So he will not remove his Spirit from the believer. That local church... He said he'll remove the lampstand, but it does not apply to the believer. Go ahead, no, Becky, and then Gene. But the, like you pointed out earlier, mm-hmm. what applies to the believer is that if we're doing no good, if we are... He'll take you home. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Yes. And even that, even that verse in Revelation that says he will remove the lampstand from its place. Right. Which doesn't mean that it necessarily that it disappears altogether. No. That's why I say it could be scattered, it could be moved to a different area. Exactly. Exactly. That's effective. Good. But as a follow-up to what Becky just said, mm-hmm. if he takes you home because you have just... You're going to miss out on reward. But I, where are you going to end up? In heaven. Let me show you another passage. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is one of the most clear passages that actually deals with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Start in verse 10. Alright? Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. He's saying once the foundation of Jesus Christ has been laid, each of us are going to be held accountable for what we build on top of it. And whether it's wood, hay, or straw, which will burn up, or gold, silver, or precious stones, the day of judgment, the fire of God's judgment, will test what we've done. It says here, if what we have built on top of that foundation of salvation has been burnt up, we will suffer loss, they'll still be saved, but only as one barely making it over the flames. And you remember in the Olympics when the the guy would do the high jump, the Fosbury flop, you remember the Fosbury flop where they go and do the high jump? Have you ever seen the guy go over the bar and his backside hits the bar and it jiggles and everybody goes, (gasps) but then the bar stays and he made it? That's kind of the picture that it's talking about here. You know, this person's in heaven by the grace of God because the foundation was laid. They built nothing on it, but they're in heaven. Why? Because God gave salvation. They'll suffer much loss. What we don't realize is what we do now on this earth is having an effect on how we're going to be living for eternity. I grew up with people in, in the church saying this. They'd say, well, I don't really care about rewards in heaven. I'd just be glad to be there. Well, let me just tell you. That's horrible theology. Because do you not realize that you're going to live for a thousand years on this earth before you get to actual heaven? The Bible says he's going to gather his bride before the last seven year period for the nation of Israel and the world. And we're going to go, we're going to be judged according to what we've done. Not to determine whether or not we get into heaven, but to him reward us whether or not we've been faithful. And that will determine our responsibilities in the coming kingdom when Jesus literally sets up his kingdom on the earth. We're going to come with him. Remember in Luke, he said to the guy in the parable of the ten minas, you've been faithful with much, you'll be in charge of ten cities. We're somehow going to be held accountable for what we do after salvation, and it will determine how we live in the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So, people say, oh, I'll just be glad to be in heaven. If you understand your Bible, you're not going to be there for a thousand years. You're going to be in there briefly for that seven-year period, if you will, but in heaven there's no time. You're going to be there as we go to the judgment seat of Christ and the, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then we're coming back to this earth with Jesus for a thousand years. 
So, go ahead. But it is interesting. It almost seems like an oxymoron here because we want to rest in the Lord. That's where we want to be, in Him, mm -hmm. doing what He calls us to do. Mm -hmm. And this is what you're saying. This is what is building right. on that foundation. Whatever it is that He's gifted you and called for you to right. be. Right, because as we see others that may be just working, working, working like crazy, and they could also be saved. Mm -hmm. But they're unhappy, they're burdened, they're complaining. Well, this, these people in Ephesus were saved. Right. They couldn't have had a first love unless they were first saved. Right. But yes, you're right. But still did not lose their salvation. Can't lose your salvation. That is one of the most clear teachings. It's sad that there are so many out there that are teaching that you can. You can't. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, no one can snatch them out of my hand? Right. You can't even walk out. That's that, that, that comforting. Yeah, uh, 24 on Jew. Mm -hmm. That um, he's able to keep it from falling. Yep. And you just picture. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I use as a criteria for, for the jewels and the things that last. Was it done for the love of the Lord Jesus or for some other reason? That's right. Right. Amen. That's right. That's a real good, it's a real good measuring stick. This is this going to have lasting eternal value? And was the Lord in it or are you doing it? For a pat on the back. Well, that's a good point, too, because it's not that we should base ourselves against how well are we doing compared to, say, Billy Graham or somebody like that. It's all, are we doing what God has for us to do? Exactly. He gave, remember, he gave one five, another two, and another one. Yeah. Not everybody's expected the same. He's not measuring us against Billy Graham. Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Praise the Lord I'm not being measured against Billy Graham. Praise the Lord I'm not being measured against Duke. <laughs> I'm still going to get you for that painting comment. <laughs> I didn't even talk about what my job's going to be in heaven. I don't able to preach, but man. I want you to do a good job with a trim on the floor. <laughs> I'm going to ask God to have me paint somebody else's house but yours. No, Daddy, you can do much more if you just splash the paint on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you for this time to study your word. Lord, we thank you for the fact that it's hard to even get a few verses through this book of Revelation because it ties back with the whole of Scripture in so many places. Lord, may we just rest today in the fact that you are among the lampstands. You're the one who's working in your churches. And as we've looked at, even if a church, a local church is disobedient, you'll still take care of the individual believers who are going to be walking with you and following you. And Lord, even if that local church gets uh, the lampstand removed, you'll take care of the individuals in that church, even if they're scattering or whatever. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can rest in the fact that you'll never take away the gift of salvation. How your word says in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that your gifts and your calling are irrevocable. Thank you for the fact that you'll never take back what you've given us, and salvation is that gift. Father, I also pray, though, that each of us would allow your spirit to show us what it is that you see. Lord, we don't know. We have a hard time judging ourselves because we're easy on ourselves at times, or maybe we're harder than you would be. We have a real hard time judging ourselves, and your word tells us not to do it. You just tell us to let you open our eyes to what you see. So, Lord, may we hear your firm, sharp, double-edged sword voice speak to us, yet at the same time may we understand that it's coming from your love and your tenderness as well. And so, Lord, may you show us what it is you want us to see. Lord, if some of us need to repent and remember the height from which we've fallen and go back to things we did at first, may that be the first and foremost thing, not even worrying about next week's study. And we get to that place where we're living in that love relationship with you. Thank you for the fact that you're going to continually work on us in this area. And you'll never let us go. We thank you for this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.